So it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Peter A. Sullivan to our first um, MACP video and uh, podcast. Um, my name is Matthew Lowe, and um, I'm just thank you very much for pleasure. being here. Um, so we we spoke some time ago about um, the whole cognitive functional therapy framework mm. that you've been using. Yeah, and. Um, I think it's gained in popularity and for good reasons, come out with some fantastic results in some randomized control trials, and mm. it's evolving. Um, I'm really interested in how this evolved, or how this started, really. So would you be happy to discuss your journey, really? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> my journey goes back a long time. I trained as a physio in New Zealand many years ago. Uh, graduated in 87, I think. and um, I came out a very frustrated, um, probably quite disillusioned physiotherapist who, who straight away applied for medical school, actually. <laughs> I felt like I'd been dished up a whole lot of rubbish and was forced to regurgitate it, and this was stuff that wasn't evidence-based at all. I felt like I was a jack of all trades and a master of nothing. So I then, as a young, I, I, I applied for medical school and they said, mm, they weren't that keen for me to jump from one training to another, take a year out. And I basically did every workshop I could get my whole hand on. So I went through the McKenzie system. I did the Mulligan. You know, I trained with Michael Monaghan as an um, uh, osteopath. And I was working in a pri private practice with very good manual therapists. And I think I had a glimmer of something at that point that I, quite attracted me. So I naturally enjoy working with people. Um, uh, I enjoyed the handling of manual therapy. I quite liked the instant fact that you could change pain. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, uh, I liked, so, but I had no framework to hang this on. So after working for three years, um, I developed a whole lot of clinical skills and tricks, I think. I think I was really good at tricks. So I was good at symptomatic relief, but then the patients would come back and say, yeah, I felt really good, but the pain's come back. And that so my frustration built again. Um, and so I looked around at where I could go to do further training and um, there's a chap called Mark Steptoe who unfortunately died who'd been to Perth and had done training in, uh, with uh, Lance Toomey and Brian Edwards and, and Bob Elby and he said go to Perth because that's a really good, good centre which will give you some really solid grounding to develop. So I went to, then went to Australia and I was again another sense of frustration, I was really pushed around the joint, the Maitland system really frustrated me because I was what kind of big picture, really around functional movement. I felt like I was constrained to thinking of joints and I think that forced me to start thinking around the local structure and the palpation of it and the mobility of it and that's when the whole thing around instability kind of popped up. So I was looking at movement and I was really interpreting, interpreting um, so what we saw were provocative movement behaviours as instabilities at the back. That was all the biomechanical model that I was really embedded in. And around that time was evolution of looking at muscles. So that kind of was a natural extension around training individual muscles around the back. And that's when I then, uh, I, I was working both in a pain management clinic, dealing with completely disabled people with pain where this stuff was just not working at all. And then in a practice setting where you know, pain was less disabling, where the pain seemed to be much more amenable. And I realised that my framework wasn't really working. Um, and so I kind of then, so these are these kind of evolutionary steps in my, my thinking. 
then I worked, started doing my PhD, and um, and uh, through the course of the PhD, which was a wonderful process of being forced to look at the literature critically, and then having people around me like Max Usman, who was an absolute mm. critic of mine, mm. uh, he pushed every button of mine, but I had support, a nurturing support of people like Bob Elway, who was an extraordinary clinician, and then clear thinking brains of people like Lance Toomey, who basically kept me sensible. I had this these interacting influences of some great human beings who probably really shaped how I was then starting to think. Um, and the combination then of looking at the research data that we were picking up and the patients were coming back saying, you know, this is making me worse or this isn't working. And then the evolution of the neuroscience coming through and then the influence of understanding how psychological impact of pain made me reckon that, made me realize my limited model of looking at the back just wasn't working. So the kind of, we started, I suppose I started around looking at movement and then we start looking beyond that and go, well, some, why are people moving like that? And so some people we know that move in a certain way because they're frightened or they've been told crazy things or they're distressed or they're anxious. And so the whole mind-body thing started to merge in with that. And then the, within that mix, the understanding of neuroscience. So I kind of see it as like a, a stepwise evolution where my understanding of a problem just grew and grew and grew and grew. And with that, we, I realized that, that we needed a much broader framework of considering people with pain that course triages them, yeah. um, considers their thoughts and beliefs and behaviors and their fears and anxiety, et cetera, um, their behaviors around the way they move that can be reflected in that. Uh, the lifestyle factors and all the mix of that and then to try and work out a way in which we could then present that in a way that's sensible, relevant and attainable. And I, I used this quote that I saw in the airport the other day, taking complexity and giving simple solutions. So the idea of taking a complex story and a history and identifying key factors that then become targets mm. for care. Mm. So there's not, it's, I could pinpoint many steps in that journey uh, but the number of somersaults in my own belief systems that I've had to do have been extraordinary. So really coming from an angle of seeing everything around biomechanics structure to then really seeing that pain is just an expression of the nervous system that can be influenced by many, many things and that they are the things that become the targets is a big shift in my thinking, but it probably have been a number of steps over a long career. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, it does. And certainly there were some eminent people you mentioned um, yeah, very, really. very uh, influential to you. Yeah. Can you recall any particular events or things that these people had said to you that made you just stop and go, hold on, I need to look at this differently? Look, I can think of a number of... Um, so someone like Bob Elvey was an extraordinary clinician and he, in himself, ex went through an extraordinary change at the end of his career where he went from being... you know, He was always interested in neuroscience. So that was because of the whole, his whole exploration around the... The, um, the nervous system and the development of, um, you know, provocation testing of the upper limb, etc. And one of the things he really regretted was calling it the nerve tension test because it gave people an idea that these nerves were tense and need to be stretched. That was one of his biggest regrets. So I remember Bob being very clear and apologetic about that. And it, I think that empowered me to say, you know, what we were thinking was wrong. 
that whole word, like language like instability, was just wrong. It was just wrong. I published my name next to it. I can't do a damn thing about it. I regret it. <laughs> and all I can say is that it was where my brain was at. It was where my beliefs were at. Yeah, so yeah. that was quite a transformatory process where Bob was really rapidly evolving with his understanding at the end of his career, which showed something about that guy's capacity to change. Um, uh, Max gave me hell around this idea and, and I think what happened across Max's career and mine was that we kind of really came much closer to a point of understanding towards the end of his life and career. Um, I can think of moments in time where a, a key patient has massively changed how I think. Mm. Where a patient, I remember a patient came in and I've been giving him work around his lower abdominal wall, you know, training the transverse abs, and he's going, this is making me worse. And I can't stop thinking about these muscles and I feel tortured and it's like distressing me. I've gone, what the hell am I doing? So the, the, these kind of crystal moments, I can remember a, you had this belief that a positive actor's straight leg raise was instability of the pelvis. And I saw this woman and we had her in the MRI scanner and we were twisting and stressing and doing all the torsion tests of her pelvis and not a damn thing was moving. We were measuring the things going, this is an illusion. So these kind of moments in time, we remember looking at the, the EMG data of people where we thought they had a multifidus that was inhibited and all the EMG data demonstrated they were excessively activated. Mm. And we're like, going, what the hell are we thinking? So probably every study or experiment that we set up we have a hypothesis, which is what research is for, and we look at the evidence, and it forces us to rethink our hypothesis, because when you look at the data, it doesn't fit with how we think. Yeah. And so you realize, for me, a lot of my beliefs are beliefs not driven by evidence, because we've really come from a profession where we haven't had a lot of evidence. Yeah. And so that quest for knowledge and understanding has been a really big drive, which is within the lab setting, we can honestly look at the data and it changes how we think. Within a clinical setting, it's forced me to be very reflective and open about how I deal with patients to say, what's your experience, rather than being judgmental and saying, this is what you have and this is what you need to do. Yeah. And I think then the patients come back and inform you about the successful otherwise of your treatment. And that's part of that evolutionary process. So I see this as continuum, not an endpoint. And who do you feel gave you that honesty that you felt that you needed? Is that something that you just derived and managed yeah. to attain for yourself? Look, or? it's part of my personality, yeah. I think, and I've been surrounded by some really fantastic human beings mm. who were at the top of their profession but were never arrogant, who were always extraordinarily generous with knowledge, who were never protective, they never commercialised what they did in their knowledge, and they've been great role models for me to go down a similar path. Mm. And. You mentioned some of the patients that have taught you certain things. Mm. Do you still see those similar kind of patients? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So I have a, I've worked three days clinically, mm. um, and I just get an extraordinary mix of people, just like we have today. We think we've seen three completely different stories today. A lady who's had pain her entire life, where pain and distress and um, early life stress events have really sculptured her nervous system to leave her very vulnerable. Uh, we see a young boy who's just been given bad advice, who's a bit anxious, who's become very frightened around something that is just not a structural problem. Mm. We've seen a little girl who's been told by a surgeon, you know, that she's got a disbulge and if she dances, she could end up in a wheelchair and paralysed. And you just go, 
that complexity, the complexity, the individual, the richness of the individual story, and the interaction between all these things that are relevant in that person's life, to me is very, very, a very exciting place to be. And I, I think the reason I still work clinically is I just see the extraordinary plasticity in the nervous system and to unlock that gives people a huge opportunity for change. And I think, I think we've, we've almost taken on this belief that if your pain's persisted for that long, there's no chance for change. Mm. And that is not where my brain's at. Mm. Mm. So, so in answer to your question, no, I, 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 I'm, I get to see all manner of pain disorders from TMJs to regional pain syndromes in the hand and people are frightened to put their foot on the ground and pelvic pain and back pain and neck pain. It's all the same story to me. We've just used the back as a model. And we see this framework that we've developed for the back as being really applied to the body. Uh, so that really comes on to our next question. So we have some questions from um, some MACP members and also from Twitter. So mm. there was a big ask. Mm, I saw that. I didn't see what the questions were, but I noticed there was something <laughs> brewing. <laughs> So, so one of them was from um, Seth O'Neill. I think you know. Yeah, okay. Seth. No, I don't oh, I know of him. Of, of, yeah, Chris's sure. Friends. Yeah. Um, uh, he's a works at the University of Leicester and is a private practitioner. Mm. And he's uh, his Twitter handle is at Seth O'Neill. Yep, I've seen him. And he um, his questions mainly arise around um, one particular one is it appears that some people think that this approach is something that Pete can use, and Pete can do very well. But no one else can. Okay, well that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, the re <laughs> I'm sorry. No. The reason I say it's ridiculous is that I have not been personally involved with a single trial, and that's deliberate. Yep. So after my PhD, I made a clear decision. I would be involved in training therapists, but that was it. Yep. Now I think what's happening now is the the study in Norway. I didn't. I I trained the therapist. I left. I never went back until the trial was finished. So that, that is not a test of me. That's a test of therapists who, who, are, who are trained. Yeah. Now, um, uh, take Chris Newton, for example, and, and Gupre, who, who've just gone off on their own and just run a series of cases through the system and collected their evidence. Um, there's another two uh, therapists that, who I saw, Susie and Lucy, who have done exactly the same thing in their department showing that they're getting great effects. Um, there's a group in Denmark doing the same thing. So what I'm hearing now is I'm getting emails from people who are contacting me saying, I never used to be confident dealing with pain and now I am. I have renewed confidence. Now that doesn't tell me that they need a special skill. That tells me that they've got a mindset change, that they're looking at pain in a different way. They're not having to worry about whether they can feel what the joints are doing. They're taking a different view on pain and they're motivated and confident to deal with it in a way that empowers people for change. That's not a Peter O'Sullivan effect. That's giving people confidence that they can deal with pain in a way that's effective. Oh, so it annoys me when I hear sure, that I because I, <laughs> no, I, I just think I that think is the reason we're not, I'm not doing the treatments in these yeah, studies no, because it would be wrong because of yeah. course it potentially yeah. is an influence. Yeah. What we're interested in doing is empowering a group of people and I think this, these thoughts should be embedded. If I had had this embedded in my undergraduate training, it would have completely yeah. saved me a lot of heartache. Yeah. I think Seth 
um, said that as a provocative point. It's so, good. So you've <laughs> I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you know, the question, I know Ian Cow's doing some, uh, some research at the moment uh, with his PhD where he's looking at taking a group of physiotherapists and looking at examining them with a the patient and then taking them through a clinical training, like a training journey, and then looking at them and seeing what it takes to get people to shift their mindset and change the way they practice to work in this model. That's really valuable research because it gives us some idea of saying, how do we get a handle on what people are doing? What are the key tools that you need? And we were talking about this last night, you know, I think, I think physiotherapy is in a really, we have an extraordinary opportunity in that I think it demands a lot of skills so psychologists have great skills in communication. We need them as well. But we need observational skills. We need to triage. We need triage skills so we miss, don't miss out on the bad stuff. Um, we need motivational skills. We need to be trainers and motivators and um, educators. So that, to me, is exciting because that's a multiple skill set mm. that gives people great possibilities of developing something really quite effective in a career. Mm. And very fulfilling. Yeah, that's why I do clinical practice. I, I think it's, it's um, extraordinarily rewarding to take someone who's lost hope and is disabled and feels like they can't, be, they can't live and to give them hope and strategies to take control of things in their own life. So it's not me doing it. It's not, it's not that I've waved a wand or done a special technique. It's that they have then felt the confidence to then change the, how, they, how they think about their body and move on. And that moves on to Seth's next point, which is, do you feel that this approach can be used outside of the back? And you've already yeah, answered course, the question. Yeah. 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 So he and we're already starting to look at this. Uh, there are a couple of different research groups have contacted me, uh, interested in applying this in neck, which we use anyway clinically, and also in other parts like the knee, um, as we know that, uh, some, say, something like OA knee, we get the same mix of things. People are freaking out. They frighten to move. They co-contract their knee. They start limping and avoiding. And, of course, it winds them up more. They're paying attention to it. So that whole mix of, you know, beliefs, cognitions, behaviours is part of the mix in other body parts. So we're interested in extending this model to other regions. Fantastic. Sounds great. Um, Nicola Hinahan and Alison Rushton from the University of Birmingham asked, uh, your earlier uh, research focused on the biomechanical evaluation of the spine and muscle activation. How relevant do you think this is now in relation to the CFT approach uh, to non-specific low back pain? Um, and do you think that the research may have been obstructive at the time to understanding, or did you feel that that was necessary in order for it to evolve? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. This debate came up in Denmark last week. I was at a conference there. I think, I think there's a really big... Um, misunderstanding around biomechanics. It's, like, it's almost like we put them in separate categories. Yeah. So we've seen examples today of three people who all demonstrate certain behaviours around they move. That could be captured in their biomechanics and their muscle patterning, but they're influenced by their thoughts and fears and beliefs. I can't, they're inseparable. So we, I tend to, so rather than talking in terms of biomechanics, I would talk at movement as a behaviour. So behaviour that is a reflection of what you're thinking. It's a behaviour of environment. And we know that from studies we've been done where, you know, how you feel, your emotional state, your beliefs, your picture of your body, your uh, body schema awareness, um, 
uh, your levels of sleep, your conditioning, all those factors will sculpt how you move. And in a sense, I see that as a behavior. So um, I think where my brain was at interpreting that data was thinking around muscle and biomechanics, where what I would look at now is that's just an expression of what's going on in someone's head. So we saw today examples of people who are protective and guarded because they think their spine's going to about to break in half. So the expression of movement that we can capture by looking at movement analysis and EMG of muscle guarding and protecting and stiffness is reflected in the fear or the belief that their back is damaged. To me, you can't separate them. And I think one of the things that really frustrates me as well, it's a bit of frustration going on here, is that we kind of CBT someone, we educate them and communicate with them, and then we tell them to get active. And, you know, we've missed, a, we've missed a huge opportunity in that we can teach people that movement is safe if we give them behavioural strategies to change that empower them to do it in a way that's non-provocative. We've seen three examples today. One guy who was just freaking out, misinterpreted the pain, and we've just given him the confidence to go and he feels better. Another young girl who's developed some quite provocative ways in which she's moving, and just simple strategies of changing it gives her freedom to do what she wants to do. Another lady's got a whole lot of pain behaviours who believes she's damaged, but actually normalising that and relaxing and moving gives her a way out. So call it what you will. They are, they are things that could be captured in biomechanics and EMG, but it's how you look at them and how you can interpret them and, and how you communicate them. Yeah. And I get a sense that no one patient is the same. Never, no. And that's where... You know, it's probably one of our greatest challenges is how you um, educate a workforce. And we've had touched on this. So I've kind of gone through these phases and talking about subgroups and then broadening that to think about a classification system. And now we're thinking about a framework um, to say, well, look, instead of boxing people, it's almost like to say, you know, these are the, extra these are the different possibilities. Mm. This gives you an idea of the variability that's people, these are the options that people have to, to do a task. These are the kinds of things that may, you might find them doing that may be provocative, but don't judge it until you experience, experience it with an individual. And I think that's quite unique in the CFT model is that with CBT, it's about the talking. With a CFT model, it's about the experience of modifying behavior to reflect back to the person that movement is not damaging and dangerous. So we would use palpation, for example, of um, a touch of reflection, of feedback with mirrors, of relaxing the body, of doing things that they think of threatening in a different way, and then say, what was your experience? And the experience is, you know, for this lady, to stand on one foot, she thought her leg would collapse. But as she built her confidence with loading her leg, she experienced that she, it felt stronger. So that's telling her using your leg is good. So that, that experiential learning or reflective learning, which we know in motivational interviewing is really important, we use in a physical manner around the behaviours that are feared or provoked or avoided. So it's very practical and it's very, um, it's very confronting of people's pain experience because usually the thing that they most fear is the thing that actually helps, mm, mm. ironically. And it's extremely powerful. Very powerful. And I think that's why we see such big changes quickly. And I had a workshop a few years ago with um, Stephen Linton, who's a pain psychologist, and I had a lady who was frightened of bending, and he had a lady who he talked to. Very skilled guy, fantastic um, communicator. 
And the communication stuff's really important. So the interview, I think, is an integral step of building trust and understanding what's going on in someone's head and their experience of pain and their beliefs. But then the flip side of that is the behaviours. And we have that opportunity. I've worked with a pain psychologist in Perth, and he's going, you're so lucky you can touch your patients. You can put your hands on them. You can guide them. You can facilitate them. You can give them a new experience that that movement is safe, that to, to do the things that you fear is not going to blow your disc. But we can do that. And that's a really powerful tool in our armory that we have license to use. And I think... You know, we've been taught to go through a list, a tick list of assessment things and then tell people how it is. I see examination as a reflective process of learning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very similar to motivational interviewing in that way. I it guess. is, yeah. but it's not about the it's just the talking, talking, but it's through the behaviour. So we're just talking to Ann Cow about writing a paper up on that because it's quite unique, I think, to this approach. My name is Uzo Ehiog and I'm the Communications Officer for the MACP. This is a great opportunity to take a quick break and to tell you about the MACP and other continuing professional development activities which you can access. The MACP offers high quality educational opportunities through a variety of formats including short courses, lectures and online learning, including topics such as motivational interviewing, introduction to musculoskeletal radiology, manual therapy, spinal masqueraders, MSK updates, and of course, conferences. In 2016, the MACP will host the IFON Conference. The IFON Conference is a prestigious international conference held every four years to celebrate innovation and research within the neuromusculoskeletal physiotherapy field. In July 2016, we will host a conference in the UK in Glasgow and the theme for the conference will be Expanding Horizons. This conference will be of benefit to both clinicians and researchers alike and will bring together leaders and innovators in the clinical, academic and research fields. This conference will cover five strands which will include advanced assessment, practice and managing complex patients, integrating research into practice, health promotion and public health, changing roles and scope of practice, teaching, learning and professional development. To find out more, simply join our mailing list and receive all the latest news and information on iPhone 2016. This will include being the first to hear our keynote speaker podcast as they are released. So to find out more and to register your interest, visit the iPhone website at www.ifontconference.org and see you there in July 2016. Gerard Green from the University of Birmingham, um, a social media officer for the MACP asks, if we do the podcast in 10 years' time, are you confident that there will be a significant change God, I hope so. uh, in the management of persistent pain? Yeah. Um, I suppose the question is, what do you mean around um, what is usual practice for management or my practice for management? I'm pretty sure I know the answer to the second one because it's always going to evolve. Yeah. But I, I think it's probably the first one. Hell, I hope so. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just get so um, saddened mm. to hear stories of the people we've heard today, like the young girl who's 14, 15, who went to see someone and she's got a disc bulge and she was told by the surgeon she couldn't dance for six to 12 months, um, the thing she loves. 
uh, and that she, she had to, um, <clears throat> and if she did, she could end up paralyzing herself in a wheelchair. That's just absolutely wrong. Um, these are the stories I hear. This other lady who's holding herself erect, keeping her back arch, bracing herself to bend. I'm going, and it's clearly painful, and to relax and bend is not. And I'm going, why have you done that? She's going, I was told by a physio, after my discectomy, I should never bend my back again. I'm hearing that stuff. And you realize it's not so much what we do, it's what we say that has these enduring negative consequences on people's lives. We have to change the language. That means we have to change what we believe. And I think that means we've got to change how we educate people at an undergraduate level. And I think until we do that, we're not going to change the problem. But I do sense a cultural shift. I do. I think there's a growing sense that we have to do something different because we've done thousands of RCTs that show exactly the same thing and it's not working very well. Next question is from Helen Preston at Preston's Health. Do you plan to trademark the no. CFT approach? No. So, I, look, I've thought a lot about this thing and I've, I've taken my name out of this whole approach as well, so I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about... A, to, I think the idea of trademarking something, this is about human beings and their understandings and beliefs and behaviours. That is something for everybody to know. That is not something for me to own. Um, the one thing that I, I, I am... I do, I suppose, the only thing that um, we're interested in, I've been very reluctant to push this whole model until we have sufficient evidence. Yeah. Because we know how tough these disorders are. Um, and my view is once the next run of um, clinical trials come through, if it's supporting what we're thinking, we're then really interested in developing um, a, you know, a growing group of clinicians who are not interested in the commercialization of the approach, but are interested in helping people's journey with pain. And so we're interested in teaming. We are teaming up with clinical researchers who have got that interest. And it's, and it's essentially it's an altruistic interest. And one of the things that we're doing at the moment is I do not gain anything. I do not want financial gain for anyone else who's of, the, of the, my team who's running workshops in this area. But what we're doing is taking 15% that goes into a research fund that supports ongoing research with pain. So that's been a deliberate view of mine to not get involved in the commercial commercialization of this. Oh, fantastic. Um, next question is from Uzo, um, uh, communications officer of the MACP at Consultant Physio. Um, he's asking about Stuart McGill's approach to low back pain management. It appears to suggest certain exercises to spare the spine of excessive load while training the core. What are your thoughts on this? See, that's a contradiction in terms to me, uh, in the sense that if you, if you co-contract the spine, you are creating load. So co-contraction equals load. Now, it probably reflects maybe a different group of people students working with power lifters and that. I'm, I work with people, I, look, I do work with athletes, um, but I do work with people who can't get out of a chair and can't roll over in bed and can't bend down to undo do their shoes. And what we know about the EMG studies in the back is that I think we've been tricked into thinking that these people don't have enough core stability. But if you look at the EMG studies, overwhelmingly they have got excessive co-contraction around the trunk. Overwhelmingly. 
So this idea that they need more just does not make sense. We look at sister, recent systematic review looked at the way people with pain move, they move slower and stiffer. To me, that's co-contraction. That's co so the idea that we want to stiffen people more and create more co-contraction doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, I don't see this as prescriptive. It's more looking at the individual and saying, what's your experience? What's your experience with lifting? So we saw a lady today who lifts with her back arch and it really hurt her. And I got her to relax and put the same load on and it didn't hurt her. To me, that's saying relaxing your spine when you lift for you is good. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not me saying this is what you need. That's me saying what's your experience and how does, how does changing the way you do that facilitate your ability to become functional and active again? So that's a non-judgmental thing. I think as physios, we've been too too quick to say that's a bad posture, that's a bad movement, that's a bad this, and we're telling a lot of rules instead of saying, okay, so you can't jump and land. You're a dancer, but every time you land, you hurt yourself. How are you doing that? Let's give you other strategies or thoughts around that movement and see if that can give you, your experience, give you a different experience. And if it does, that's great. If it facilitates people back to not thinking of their backs, that's fantastic. So we had a lady today who was saying, She'd had a, um, she'd, we saw her a year ago. She was cycling and her brakes failed and she smashed into a wall. She had like a post-traumatic event. Three years later, she was in excruciating pain and had gone through core stability, posture training, um, uh, gym work, you know, massage, acupuncture, the whole thing, and was just no better. And I looked at her and just to close her eyes and remember the event, tensed her arm. She was autonomically aroused, tense, co-contracted postures. And I just said, relax and breathe. That's all, I, that's all we did. She came back today. She's going, after about two months, the pain all went away. I don't think about it anymore. Fantastic. Is she back on her bike? Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and then she came in today. And she said, the, you know, the, the interesting thing about that, she said, so I said, was well, there anything that you think you can't do. She goes, well, I get a little bit of back tension when I'm in the gym. I said, what is it doing? It's doing squats and core work. Planks, she said. When I do planks, sit-ups and core work, I'm going, what are you doing that for? She goes, well, if I think I get a bit more stronger core, I'm going, but you told me that before you did that, it made you worse, and by just relaxing and breathing, it made you better and not thinking about your pain? Yeah. Why do you think you need more core? You, these are such sticky beliefs. Yeah. And the thing is, I think it's 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 gone. So it's gone across culture. It's culture. Yeah. You know, it taps into female should have a flat belly. Mm. It mm. taps into a deep recesses of our mind. Anyway, so that whole core thing. Look, to be strong is a good thing. If you're a power, if you've got to be strong and have endurance and power, you have to co-contract. Yeah. But I don't see powerlifters. That's not. I do see people working out in gyms, and I do see them getting hurt. Usually, it's because they're excessively co-contracting, or they're hyperextending, or they're hyperflexing, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we just make adjustments around that. But that is not my average clientele. Chris McCarthy at Combined Mover, MACP Chair, asks: Whilst there is a recognition that non-specific back pain uh, should be managed with a biopsychosocial uh, perspective, there remains a desire to diagnose the condition mm. from one domain. Yeah. How would you recommend we adapt the diagnostic yeah, it's a process great question, to Chris. the multidimensional? Yeah, that's so. I'm, I've given this a lot of thought in recent times. It's a very good question. I see a diagnosis as reductionistic, and I think it limits us. So we've talked a lot about this today in terms of I don't give a single diagnosis. So I see a pain experience is influenced by your history of pain, 
um, your beliefs, your emotional responses, your levels of fear, your behaviours, your lifestyle factors, etc., as p setting you up for a, getting trapped in a cycle of pain, I explain that to a person with pain. So my explanations of pain are about the multidimensional nature of pain extracted from their story. And the beauty of that is people go, that makes sense. Where I hear these reductionist labels usually leave people trapped and often there's nowhere to go from them. You got a weak core, what do you do? Strengthen your core, then what do you do if that doesn't work? You've got to damage this, what are you going to do with that? Replace it or protect it? So, so those kinds of, you know, your power's out of place, what do you do with that? Tense it up, protect it. You know, these are things that don't give patients controllability, where I think understanding pain from a multidimensional perspective, you can then invite them to say, does that make sense? They go, That's, that makes sense. Then what can you change in that? And there are a whole bunch of things they can then identify that are modifiable that gives them autonomy and builds their self-efficacy for change. So every which way it works, I think. Fantastic. Um, Chris Kent, MACP member from Northampton, asked, is there a system for weighting the influence of movement control deficits as opposed to the psychosocial aspects and mm. the overall clinical picture of non-specific low back pain? And he's asking for a manual or AV presentation that explains how targeted care is based on the patient's dominant factors mm. and the relevant psychosocial dimensions. Okay, so two questions. Yes, I think you're right. So the, you, if you'd seen what we'd, you've got a touch of what we're utilizing at the moment. So we've developed a, um, a uh, clinical reasoning kind of form that is really taking the multidimensional framework and then ask the, uh, the um, physiotherapist to consider the weighting of all the different domains and then that becomes the kind of transition to care. So we have one of these guides where the physical domain wasn't really that important but his beliefs around pain were really important and so attending to the way he moved wasn't important as part of his care. So that clinical reasoning process gives weighting to the importance of the various domains and that then is a transition to that next point. So we're actually developing at the moment a, um, like an e-book. Um, I've thought, I've been asked by a lot of different book people to write a book and right. I don't know like people read books anymore. Um, so I'm really, I wrote one years ago and I've never done anything with it. Um, and I'd have to update it now, but, but I've been very reluctant to do that. But yeah. something that's plastic and dynamic, like an e-book, is what we're working on, that's interactive and got video and kind of like gives you um, guidance around these various domains and what's important. Um, we've just, uh, with some colleagues at Curtin, written a, a translational framework paper that's under review at the moment around taking what you understand as a biopsychosocial approach and looking at how you transition that into practice. So we're very interested in that translational story um, and both of things that we realise we have to develop um, tools for people for that process. And one of the plans, if we get this e-book to a stage so that it's disseminated, is to anyone who pays money for it, has the money goes straight into a research fund that builds the next generation of researchers. What a fantastic resource. Mm. Same thing. Great. The last question we have is from Jack Chu at Chu's Health. Um, and I believe this was in the context of the recent mindfulness-based functional therapy mm. article, which was in uh, Frontiers in Psychology in 2014. Yeah. Um, and I think the question was, Jack wonders if the, the concept 
is in danger, as in the CFT concept, mm. is in danger of taking a promising, uh, oh, sorry, it's a promising concept, but it's taken to a d another direction for the sake of doing something different. So uh, it's a bit, I, I, had, I had difficulty interpreting that question. Uh, okay. So it, it sounds like, because it's changed from cognitive functional therapy to... Uh, no. Okay, let me just give you some background, because I know that popped up in the Twitter sphere as well, and right. I made a very clear point to say that's not CFT. Got you. Okay. What that was was a pain psychologist who um, works in the same town who's very interested in mindfulness. And he wanted to do a mindfulness intervention. Uh, and um, he asked if we'd be involved in like a collaboration. So there was a, uh, there was a grant that came up at the university. So um, Helen Slater and myself, she's a um, physiotherapist at Curtin, um, were looking at testing out uh, like a combined psych mindfulness, so he's, he's had a background in mindfulness-based meditation um, with uh, group-based movement, mindfulness-related movement training, but it, it's generic, it's very group. Uh, okay. This is not individualised care. So that's why I'm saying it's a very different model than a CFT approach, which is individualised care. And that's why you can't compare them. So that my, I think there's a really big difference between saying to people, pain education, mindfulness, m movement, rather than sitting down with a person and saying, what's your experience? What are you thinking? Where are your beliefs? What's your responses? What are your individual behaviors? Where are your goals? Um, uh, where can we take you on this journey to get to the point that you're at versus a group where it's just a general expo exploration around um, pain education, mindfulness and movement? Okay. That's very different. Yeah. They're very different That's creatures. They're very different interventions. Mm. Um, and you, uh, that's not a model that I'm pursuing. It was just a project that I was involved in. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So uh, to me, the CFT approach is about the individual. It's about understanding and empowering the individual to find change for themselves that they can take control and move on in their life. And the, the, the three components that we, from qualitative studies that we see are being important is a mindset change, um, pain control or controllability of or taking control of that situation, building confidence and self-efficacy to do the things they want. And if we get those three things, it seems that people do well. That's a great point to end with. Is there anything yeah. else that you'd like to, to mention or discuss? Uh, not really. I think, um, uh, you know, we are encouraged, really, by the number of people who are excited to think differently about pain. And I think the lovely thing is, is that there are lots of research groups all around the world who we're not connected to who are starting to head in a similar direction. So I think rather than feeling like you're standing alone, you can start to see a rippling effect um, whereby the, the, we need a chorus of people who are saying, who, who are articulating the same thing, uh, where we have honesty to have people to be critical and to look honestly at the evidence. And this is not a, I think the other thing is, this is not to say this is pain is fixable, but to say it's manageable, to say that to have pain does not mean your life's on hold, that you can't do the things in life that give you joy. They are really important things. But the idea that actually pain potentially is controllable, I think, something that's really good so you know the reason I'm happy to do this stuff is to to help get a message out and to get people to think differently 
and if that's part of their journey, and then they work on their various parts of the journey, as you have, you know, the paper that you put out, I thought was really thoughtful and very helpful around your, um, your personal journey of understanding how this approach might fit for people that you deal with. And to me, that really heartens me to go, there is a number of people who are then traveling on parallel paths. That's cool. Okay, um, one of the areas that we um, would like to touch on is your personal experience of pain and, and what that taught you. Yeah, so um, I've had lots of experiences with pain, uh, which I think have been really influential in my career. As a young, um, as a young physiotherapist, I was not very fearful. And probably as a kid, I mean, I think that emerged as a child. I was the youngest of six children. Grew up in a big um, block of land on, in New Zealand. I climbed trees. I fell out of trees. I had a mother who would send me to school sick with a broken arm and then realised that it was broken later. So the, I had a kind of culture around pain is that it wasn't something to be too worried about and to just get on and toughen up and move on. So that was my kind of... Um, early life exposures around pain is if you fall over, you just get up and go, unless it's seriously wrong. And even then, don't worry too much about it. So that's the pre, that was my pretext around pain. Then my experience as a physiotherapist, as I was, I remember my first day, um, we were stripped down to our underwear and given posture photos, and it was all, and our postures were critiqued. And um, on my, I think it was my first year out as a physiotherapist, I, I went skiing and I had quite a bad skiing accident. I was flying down a slope and I lost control and I, I went off a ledge and I landed flat on my back on a um, like a cat track. So like, and I thought I, I thought I'd broken my back, which I hadn't. Um, I was in a lot of pain. I developed a lot of thoracic pain, and my response to the pain was to try and hold my posture straight, pull my shoulders back, and I just got myself into an absolute pickle. I ended up with radiating pain down my arms and pain in my back, and I actually was wondering whether I could keep on working. <laughs> one day, one day, one of the uh, therapists I was working with said to me, why are you holding yourself like that? That looks really uncomfortable. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, that is ridiculous. <laughs> and I just like, relaxed my body and it all just so slowly subsided. So that was one moment in time where I just realised that I was doing all the things I've been taught to and it just got me into an absolute pickle. <laughs> that was one moment in time. I had another um, incident where I had a, I was involved in a big car accident, and um, I was going through a red light, uh, going through a, a light, and some teenagers went through a red light and slammed into the side, right in my car door. So I had a massive whiplash, and I collided with another car. So it was like a big slamming whiplash. And I remember this moment of thinking, all <laughs> thinking of all these really screwed up patients that I've seen and going, that is not going to be my experience. So I like, made a deliberate point to go, I am not going to end up like that. And I was really sore, so I took some anti-inflammatories, just took it a bit easier. Went, so I don't normally swim, but I just did some really gentle exercise and swimming and got myself active, carried on working. Everything just settled down. And uh, that whole thing around the thoughts, that moment of time, is, am I, this is, is this something serious or is this something I'm going to just see like a tissue sprain, no different than a sprained ankle, manage it sensibly, not catastrophize, not focus on the pain and just get going and let the system settle. 
a few years later, I smashed my wrist very badly. <laughs> I was rollerblading and I landed heavily on my sacrum. I thought I'd fractured it, went to get up and I realized I couldn't move my wrist. And my radius was poking out here. And I basically split my, um, my scaphoid had split the radius and shattered it into a whole bunch of pieces. And it was just, it was depressed, fractured and fragmented. And I looked at that, I'm like, couldn't move my wrist. It was all deformed. I'm going, oh shit, that's an articular fracture. <laughs> so <coughs> my wife contacted the top um, hand specialist in, in Perth and he came out and he pieced it together and put, um, put uh, some uh, pins into it to try and hold it together. And when I saw him afterwards, he says, well, you're back. Are your wrist fucked? He said, you're going to get arthritis. You shouldn't go back to your work as a manuotherapist. It's good that you've got an academic career. And I remember a deliberate moment in my, my, a moment when I remember these um, studies of um, Mark Steptoe with uh, Lance Toomey had done these studies with sheep knees where they'd smashed them up and a group they'd immobilised, another group they'd mobilised and showing that they had this regeneration of cartilage and stuff. I'm going, that's going to be me. So as soon as <laughs> he told me I needed three months off work, I went back to work in two weeks because I was going mad thinking about my wrist. I was becoming hypervigilant, so I thought, bugger that. So I went back to work with a sling on. And I was taking, treating patients, bringing them in with one arm. So that was a, like a shift in my focus straight away. So I got active, found meaning, got going again. That was really therapeutic for me. As soon as I came out of the splint, I started moving my wrist as much as I could. I probably overdid it, actually. Um, my wrist was swollen and it would crunch and creak for about the first couple of years. And I thought, oh, well, that's my lot, but just ignore it and keep going. Then all the swelling went away, the crepitus went away, and it's, that was 17 years ago. Oh, fantastic. To rock climb, mountain bike, do whatever I want, full range of movement of my wrist, no crepitus, it's fine. Now, if I'd listened to that advice and I'd been an anxious guy who believed it, my trajectory would have been absolutely different. And that was one of these tipping points for me around uh, advice, like that advice. And so, again, these experiences have really sculptured how I see pain and how I view structure and how I see the attention to pain and the meaning you give it and the way in which you manage it. And I could tell you probably quite a few other stories of various things that I've had where I've had people telling me you shouldn't run again on that knee because you've got a, cru a, cru a ruptured cruciate. Um, and I've taken a different approach. So the literature, injury, yeah, it was another one. So the PCL, so the the literature, and that that knee became quite functionally unstable, but it's fine now. Um, and you know, the interesting thing is, um, you don't know if you heard Karen O'Sullivan's podcast the other uh, day. Yes, I have. Yeah, it's, yeah, very it's very good. It's worth listening to. But if I'm stressed, if not, no, I don't really get stressed. But if I'm a bit run down. Mm. Um, and I'm sleep deprived, I'll feel pain in different parts of my body. And that's just my immune system saying, mate, you've had a history of sensitivity there. Get a bit more sleep, get some exercise and back off your workload. Yeah. Uh, and so that's my kind of canary in the mine shaft to just say, just manage your life. That's great. And they're great stories, <laughs> great stories. And we can learn a lot from that. And, and it sounds very similar to Louis Gifford's mature organism. Yeah, as that's well. right. Yeah. Exactly. Fantastic. Thanks very again. Pleasure, mate. Good on you. Cheers. Cheers. Oh.